my guess at the end of the day when we we have our retreat in uh, Philadelphia in a couple of weeks, and this will be topic number one, I think about 80% of, of the bill that I wrote will be the backbone of that. Just in the last few days, we've seen that uh, the Republicans are in disarray. Uh, it's become clearer and clearer that they don't have a plan uh, uh, for protecting America's health and America's health care. And they're in a box they don't really quite know how to get out of. I'm Dan Diamond, and you're listening to Pulse Check. Donald Trump's inauguration is still a few weeks away, but the battle over Obamacare repeal has begun. And on today's Pulse Check, we'll grapple with two big questions. First, what will Republicans do with their legislative majority? And second, what can Obamacare supporters do, given their lack of votes, to really slow Republicans down? First, you'll hear from Congressman Phil Rowe who I caught up with on Wednesday right after he released his new Obamacare repeal and replace proposal and why he thinks Democrats' criticism of Republican strategy misses the mark. Then after the break, we'll be joined by Leslie Dock, director of the new Protect Our Care campaign, who's helping lead the fight to defend Obamacare. You'll also hear Megan Smith, a former HHS official who now works in communications, chime in too. The usual housekeeping, if you're listening to this podcast, and if you like it, let us know. Rate us on your favorite app, share it with your friends, and let me know at ddiamondatpolitico.com who you'd like to hear on upcoming episodes. And now, Congressman Phil Rowe. You you are the author of an Obamacare replacement plan. Uh, You came up with it a few years ago, in fact, and introduced a new version just an hour or so before we sat down for this conversation. Congressman, I I want you to take me, take the listeners through your thinking. When you were first drawing up the plan in 2013, how did you decide that tax deductions were going to be a big part of the plan? How much research did you do? You know, one of the, I guess, to, so our listeners can sort of know my background a little bit. I, I'm a, um, I've been a, it's hard to believe, but this year, this December, I've been a physician. I got my MD degree 46 years ago, a long time ago. Doesn't show. Uh, it, it feels it. And, um, and, and I practiced in, in uh, private practice for 31 years, also taught in medical school, and um, was at a um, large uh, medical center in Johnson City, Tennessee, that has a branch of St. Jude's Children's Hospital. So there are only six in the world. Uh, we have a medical school. It was on the faculty there, a pharmacy school, and so there's a regional referral area. So, but it's in rural Appalachia. So I had a chance to take care of a lot of people who didn't have access to to affordable health insurance. And I told my wife at the time, I said, look, I, I'm either going to quit complaining about all this stuff or I'm going to try to run for office and do something. And I knew I was at a point in my career where I could practice a few more years or I could take this experience to Washington. And, and what, year, to, what year was that? I ran in 2006 and lost and, and then ran in, which doesn't show much sense on my part, but uh, intelligence on my part. But I ran again in 2008 and won and was sworn in in 2009. So I've been here, I've just finished eight years in, in the Congress. And I never could understand to this day why health insurance is a partisan issue. It's never made any sense to me. I've never operated on a Republican or Democrat cancer in my life. I've never uh, uh, treated in a Republican heart attack, a Democrat heart attack. And I, I say this sort of tongue in cheek, but where I live, I have delivered a lot of Republican babies where I live. There's a lot of Republicans where I am. But I, I was frustrated by that when I got here in 2009. I legitimately wanted to be part 
of reforming the healthcare system, and the Democrats totally shut us out. I mean, we, we were not allowed. There were 80 amendments. Uh, I think I had 10 of those amendments I took to the Rules Committee. And for our listeners, when there's a bill that comes up, we have to, we have an amendment to that bill. We have to go to a committee called the Rules Committee, and the Rules Committee decides whether it's germane or has any meaningful, uh, should be attached to the bill. The uh, the way it works is the majority party has a majority of the members, so none of those were ruled in order. And so, therefore, this bill did not get any support from Republicans. And that's a, that's a shame because every other major piece of social legislation in American history, that's Social Security back in the 30s, uh, the Voting Rights Act 1964, the Medicaid-Medicare passage in 1965, all had both parties' fingerprints on it. So... This bill passed, and, and I had had experience back in the 90s in healthcare reform in Tennessee called TenCare. I had seen how it had failed, and as we don't need to make those and, mistakes. And, and to be clear, TenCare, that was the expansion of coverage that then got rolled back. Yes. And what happened was we wanted to use a managed care plan to, as I said, we had a state that had more uninsured than other states. So at that point in time, our Democratic Governor McWhorter, who who I liked a lot, and and I think his heart was in the right place, he wanted to expand coverage. So they let us try that, and it was an abysmal failure. And what happened was we, we, the costs went up so fast that uh, the state was going to have to get new revenue. And as a matter of fact, it actually, those health care costs going up increased the tuition at state universities. Back in 2009, you get here, you're revved up to work on health reform, and you feel locked out. I was completely, we were completely, there were nine doctors. We have a, a, up here a doctor's caucus. We now have 15, and we include dentists and nurses. I think they're 18 when we include all those folks that look at health care policy. And um, we were just completely shut out of that. And, and the, I was asked um, two Congresses ago um, by uh, then Steve Scalise, now the whip, now the third ranking Republican, to write a, a Republican alternative to the Affordable Care Act that did not increase entitlements and then control spending and increased access and lowered costs. And I said, well, is that all you want me to do? So I put a group together and we met and we were able to do this in less than three months. And it was a hundred and I think the first iteration of this was a hundred and eighty, seventy-five, eighty-page bill. We redid it last time, and the principles we looked at was we sat down and said, "Okay, what are the what are the conservative principles that all Republicans have agreed on?" Well, they are the following. One is we ought to be able to buy insurance across the state line. That's fairly simple. And and there's a great ad on TV now. I was watching the other day. It's a Geico ad. And the Geico has this little gecko standing in the middle of the street, and he's jumping from one side of the street to the other. Well, that happens to be in my district. It's uh, Bristol, Tennessee, Virginia. And the, the, the center line on State Street, if you stand on one side of that line, you're in Virginia. On the other side, you're in Tennessee. Now, you can buy car insurance. You can buy your homeowners. You can buy life insurance. You can buy every kind of insurance in the world, but health insurance. You can't do that. So that made perfect sense to allow you to do that, to allow people to group together, to expand health savings accounts, to do, to do malpractice reform, which in our state, I believe the number is in the first year, uh, we did malpractice reform, which saved uh, $100 million in a small state. Uh, transparency. Look, I, I just went through a back surgery uh, uh, two and a half months ago, and I, I, I might add a very successful back surgery. And it, it, 
right now I looked at that and I thought, and I look at my bills that come in, I can't make heads or tails of those bills, what this charge is for, what that's for. So we need transparency in billing. If you go to buy a car, you know exactly what it's going to cost you. You know what you can afford. And you, so, or you temper the kind of car you buy by doing that. We don't do that in healthcare. We need to do that in healthcare. So, and, and you are an expert, a doctor and a lawmaker who's worked on healthcare reform, and even you find, find challenges here. So to paraphrase, your bill draws on Republican principles, selling insurance across state lines, working on medical malpractice, uh, focused on price transparency, and it also does things like repeal the Medicaid expansion through the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, you would. What, what we did in our bill was, and this is something I did a very poor job of explaining in 2009, I think, when we debated this bill. One of the things that everybody worried about were pre-existing conditions. And I saw patients all the time. Let's say uh, uh, breast cancer was the most common one I saw where patients had this pre-existing condition. And then um, if they changed their job and they lost their insurance, they then couldn't be insured. And that's not right. We, we absolutely should not tolerate that in this country through no fault of someone's, no fault of their own at all. They now shut out of the insurance market. So we agreed on that. And if you think about it, what we did, which we took a sledgehammer to this. If you look at ERISA-based health care plans, and those are plans where you get your insurance through your employer. I provided that for my employees in my practice. You cannot discriminate in an ERISA-based plan. There are 155-plus million of us who get our insurance through our employer. If you get your health insurance through Medicare, you can't be discriminated against. And there are 57 million people who get their insurance there, 47 million through traditional over 65, 10 million disability. And Medicaid is now 73 million people have their insurance coverage through Medicaid. The only group that that, that that was applicable to were people in the small group or individual market, which is a very small part. And I'll, I'll take, share another frustration with me. This bill, the, the, uh, the Affordable Care Act, was so complicated. Honestly, you could have done two-thirds of what they did, the coverage expansion, in two paragraphs. One is expand Medicaid, which they did, and two, allow 26-year-olds to stay on their parents' plan. Right now, today... In 2015, 8 million people decided to pay the penalty, the tax, whatever Judge Roberts decided to call it, um, the fee, and 8 million people or so got a subsidy. So as many people decided it was too expensive. So your plan was introduced a few years ago. Now it's 2017. You're reintroducing the uh, American Health Care Reform Act. A lot has changed since those first frustrations in 2009, 2012, 2013. Now there are 20 million Americans covered through the Affordable Care Act. Why do you think repeal and replace is still necessary now? See, I think there's enough money. Matter of fact, I don't think it. I know it. I know there is enough money in the healthcare system in this country right now to cover every person in this country. There's no question in my mind about that. But we need to let innovation occur. We can't have the government come in and say, hey, uh, Dr. Rowe or Ms. Jones, you have to buy these 10 essential health benefits or you don't have, or, we, or we're going to fine you if you don't do that. We've never done that before in the history of this country. As, as alarms go by, yes. perhaps, <laughs> perhaps to put out some political mess <laughs> here on Capitol not, Hill. I hope it's not any, hope, maybe hope the Capitol's not on fire. You know, hopefully not, but you're a doctor, so you may have to run, <laughs> run. to the rescue well, if, if there's I've, a problem. Well, I've done it before. Yeah. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think if we allow 
uh, people to decide what they want. And, and we talk about, and I talked about it today, maintaining the physician-patient relationship. Let me explain to you what that is. I got a text uh, about a year ago from someone who said, I'm having hip surgery. I'm an OBGYN doctor. I don't operate on hips. I'm having hip surgery. My surgeon, the anesthesia people, because I'm having this hip, want to have, want me to have a spinal. She said, Dr. O, do you remember when I had my C-section, when you delivered my twins 22 years ago, and I had a problem with that? I want to talk to you about that. She had that much confidence in me. She didn't ask her anesthesiologist or orthopedic surgeon. She asked her primary care doctor. I'd cared for that patient since I had been in practice, and she came to me. She had the spinal. It all went fine, and out of the operating room, that child I had delivered texted me and said, my mother's doing fine. That's a physician-patient relationship, and that's being lost with this when you force people out of their insurance, make them go to another doctor, make them go somewhere else, and it's something I'd like to see put back, and I tried to do that in our bill. Though, if your bill repeals the Medicaid expansion and changes the way that people get insurance right now, there could be millions of Americans who've started to build new relationships with doctors that have to now go find doctors again. No, what we, what we did, I, no, I don't think so. And, and the reason I don't think so is this, is that our bill does not, other than uh, repealing the Affordable Care Act, um, we, we've decided that, okay, we'd only deal with a small group and the individual market in this bill. It's very limited and narrow. We know that Medicare, Medicaid, I mean, uh, needs revision. It needs reform. So what we said was we will look at either block grants, not in this bill, we'll look at block grants or per capitas for Medicaid and have that performed also as a separate bill. So, no, we don't want to see people lose their I, I, – look, I've been the one that has to see people with no insurance. Uh, I'd, I'd much rather get paid than not get paid when I see somebody. But you want the best care for the patient regardless of whether they have Medicaid. And maybe some state won't, will do what we did in Tennessee. We had 20-something thousand, maybe as many as 30,000 people who lost their insurance, who had a plan that was, a, we called it a 50-50-50 plan. Uh, the, the person, the employee paid $50, the employer paid $50, and the state paid $50, and it was a basic preventive health care plan. The one thing it didn't have was catastrophic coverage, but it covered up to like $15,000. Well, you can provide a lot of health care for families for that much money if you do it right per year. Kellyanne Conway, Trump's advisor, said this week, any repeal and replace efforts won't take coverage away from people who currently are covered. Hope it expands it. So you think your plan, you would, you would pledge that, that your plan would do that too? I think it can. And, and I think by allowing people to buy what they can afford, uh, you, you probably have covered this and written about it, but <clears throat> people who get a subsidy, for them it's worked out very well if they don't have to pay much. There's no question about that. But I'm one of those people that's considered a success on the Affordable Care Act. I had perfectly good health insurance coverage, and I lost mine. I now have the Affordable Care, I have Obamacare, and it's not nearly as good as what I had. You're not on Medicare? Well, I'm, I have Medicare Part A, but the rest of it, if I go to the doctor, get any tests or anything else, uh, like the back surgery I had, which was outpatient, was all under Obamacare. So um, I, have, I have both. Um, and and it, you, you looked at the exchanges, the, the co-ops that they set up, all but three of them or four of them are out of business out of the 22 or three they, they started. One in Tennessee failed. Though we, we should be clear, the co-ops are just a small part 
of coverage that people yeah. were able to get through them. Well, block. what they wanted to do was instead of getting a public option, they put this uh, co-op where people would have this uh, basically a, a separate plan in which they can able to buy insurance, a separate exchange, another, another place to buy it. They, they put the premiums artificially low and they couldn't pay their bills. I, I want to get back specifically to your plan. So you have introduced a few variants over the past number of years. Just to be clear for listeners, does leadership support this new plan that you announced today? You know, I think the, and this is, um, I'm not speaking for leadership, but my guess at the end of the day, when we, we have our retreat in uh, Philadelphia in a couple of weeks, and this will be topic number one, when uh, Vice President-elect Pence, who I know and I served with him in the House, uh, when he came by today, that was the first thing he talked about. He came by the conference, conference meeting today morning, yeah. to rally the troops on Obamacare just, repeal. Well, just about the transition. And so it was more than Obamacare, but it was it was about the transition. And so we he talked about that. So it's number one on their priority. And I hope veterans is about number two and tax reform in there is probably number two in veterans uh, re- reform. Given, giving your chairmanship over the yes, veterans issues. Yeah, yes. Exactly. I'm hoping that's how on their priority. And I think it is. But healthcare, they put number one. We'll, when we have that retreat, what I believe will happen is I think about 80% of, of the bill that I wrote will be the backbone of that. And I, that will be across state lines. Um, it'll be the, the things we talked about. What could happen, because we all up a very valid point, how are you going to cover low-income people, very low-income people? It, it's either Medicaid expansion or some subsidy. I mean, that's the only two options you have. Uh, Jim Capretta, uh, who you probably have written about. And he he was on this podcast a few well. weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. At um, AEI, the AI, AI researcher. Right, AI. And so uh, Dr. Price, who's going to be the new HHS director, Health and Human Services director, in his health care bill, which was an RSC bill, a previous iteration of it, looks at advanceable, refundable tax credits for low-income people to then take that credit, just like an earned income tax credit or a child tax credit, but it can only be used to buy health insurance. And they would go on the market with this amount of however much money it is and purchase their insurance with that. That's certainly a possibility for low-income people. Uh, the other, and you mentioned it earlier, most people don't uh, are not familiar with the, with the uh, tax uh, deduction we're talking about, Example I'll use is this. We use a standard deduction uh, to help people pay for their insurance, and it's $20,500. It may be modified up a little bit by now. Uh, for Let's say you make $60,000 a year and you purchase your uh, insurance, even with an employer. The employer keeps their deduction, but you then say, okay, I'm going to take a $20,000 deduction for health insurance. If I find it cheaper than that for $15,000, whatever my tax bracket is, let's say it's 20%, at the end of the year, I'm going to get $1,000 back as a, as a refund. So it would encourage people to shop for what they need, not all the bells and whistles that they don't need. Um, for instance, a pediatric dental or pregnancy coverage, I don't need that now. I, I, I get that, and the tax deduction works well if you've got the money to That's spend. Right. I think the challenge is you were just getting to, Congressman. It's lower, it's lower income people. No question about that. There are two solutions for that. One is to improve the economy where they get a job and can get health insurance, as 155 million people do. And the other, uh, there are two other, actually two other options. Um, it would be easy to do where we are is to expand our rural health, our health clinics. We, we have... Um, Uh, federally funded health clinics all over my district. You could provide great primary care at those 
at those clinics. Uh, and there are a lot of options and ways we could use. Uh, uh, I'll give you an example in my medical school at home, the Quillen College of Medicine, the average student. I graduated in seven years from college and medical school. My, my father wasn't interested in any longer plan than that. <laughs> and so I was able to graduate with a father who worked in a factory making rubber shoe heels for your shoes. He was a factory worker with no debt. Today, the average student in our state-funded medical school's debt's $180,000. If you go to private schools, $300,000. How are these young people, these young, how are we going to attract young, bright people to go into medicine? Well, one of the ways, I think, is to have you serve in an underserved area. Forgive that debt and bring you to Sargonsville, Tennessee, or to, to Sneedville, Tennessee, one of these very poor areas, and have you serve there in a, in a federally qualified clinic and provide great care for people. And the other one is the... Um, the earned income tax credit. I might add for people uh, that that to show you how bad these predictors up here are. And I, I wrote an op-ed, which I'll be glad to give you, seven years ago, predicting exactly what would happen to this. Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act is 50% more expensive than they thought it was going to be. The subsidies which the CBO predicted that there would be 21 million people on the exchanges by 2017, there are 10 million people, maybe. And this thing is on a death. It's not if it's going to fail. It's going to fail because in the state of Tennessee, our premiums went up 62% this year. So this is an argument that Republicans have put forward a lot, that Obamacare is unstable and that without doing some sort of surgery now, it's, it's going to collapse. Donald Trump, president-elect, put out a tweet this morning saying that Republicans need to be careful not to own Obamacare's failures. How much does that worry you, that if Obamacare was already on this, this path that you say leads to a death spiral, which not all researchers agree with, but let's, let's say that happens, how much brushback would Republicans suffer? Well, here's, here's, let me first of all say that I don't, they're, I don't know what Kool-Aid they're drinking, but when you've got uh, counties like in, in their 100 counties in North Carolina, and I think 95 of them have one, one place to buy on the exchange. In Tennessee this past year, Blue Cross, which is our biggest one, pulled out of Memphis, Nashville, and Chattanooga three of the four biggest markets in the entire state. It was They're a very not, disruptive year. Yeah, and, and that's only going to, well, what does that do to the pool? It shrinks the pool. It'll only be worse next year. The reason we're not going to do that, let me tell you the reason we're not going to do that. This is about people. This is not some statistic. Look, I was the guy that walked in the ER at night and saw somebody or opened the door and saw a patient in an examining room. These are real people out there that I go see that, that are suffering right now. And it's up to us policymakers and not to quit this partisan bickering and get to solving the problems of trying to lower the cost and do those things. And this hasn't worked. So if this hasn't worked, why don't we try something a little different? That's what I want to do. And maybe it won't work either. I don't know. I think it will. Um, I think if you let market principles work, you let patients decide who they go see and what insurance company they buy, what insurance policy they buy, I think it can work. But that's why we can't let people out there just hanging in a breeze. We cannot do that. Last question. When will Republicans have a plan in place? Oh, you waited till the last ask a hard question. <laughs> I think we have a plan now. There's a big discussion in our conference, as you might add. And I think that's going to be topic number one in two weeks in Philadelphia. Uh, I want to do it yesterday. 
Um, I've been pushing since yesterday, and uh, people a lot politically a lot smarter than I may know, but I'm more policy-driven. I don't worry about the politics of this too much. I really want to get the policy right. So I'm hopeful that it'll be sooner rather than later, but you'll have to ask uh, the speaker or Mr. McCarthy or Mr. Scalise that question. Okay, well, we'll keep our eyes peeled. Thank you, Congressman, for making time for this interview. Oh, thanks. It's been great. Hey, it's Dan Diamond, and we'll get back to the podcast in a moment. But just a reminder, if you like the podcast, you can also get Pulse every day as a free newsletter. It is your guide to the Obamacare repeal battle. You can sign up for free on politico.com. It arrives at 10 a.m. And if you are a pro subscriber, you get it first at 6 a.m. in addition to all the other benefits of being a Politico pro. Now back to the podcast, where you'll hear from Leslie Dock. He's the head of the new Protect Our Care campaign. And occasionally Megan Smith, former HHS official, will chime in too. You were both senior officials at HHS. Leslie, I think you left about a year ago. Megan, maybe a little bit longer than that. I left in February. So also about a year. When did you know that you would be working to save Obamacare? When did that moment come? It came about 1030 Tuesday night of the election. I think uh, uh, the notion was we were going to work to uh, take health care to an even uh, stronger place in America, building on the successes of the law, trying to make parts of it better that needed to be better, making health care more affordable, uh, but doing it in a very different context than we're doing it today. Had, had Hillary Clinton won. Had Hillary Clinton won. Yeah, on, on Earth 2 right now. What, what, what are you doing in the world that Hillary Clinton is president right now? I think we're very, uh, we would be focused, at least for me, really on the same issues, which is how do you make healthcare more affordable? How do you change the system from paying for quantity to paying for quality? Uh, and how do you continue to spur innovation and put the patient at the center? It's just that we would have been able to do it without having to uh, fight a backwards battle. The mentality right now, it, it, it feels so much like 2009 all over again, except in reverse. And many of the same folks who fought on one side are now fighting on the opposite side. Do you feel like HHS officials who have left, are, are they now coming back into the fold? Are you seeing a lot of your compatriots from five or six years ago, or are folks tired out? They've already moved on. They've moved on to different pursuits. You know, I think interestingly, some people had moved on, but now they're coming back because everyone feels just so strongly about the importance uh, of, of what this has meant for people's lives and also kind of really what a victory it was uh, that it, they're emotionally tied to this and intellectually tied to this. And so a lot of people are calling up and want to help. Don Berwick is an example of somebody who's you know called up and said, look, I just want to help. And he's one of many, many people who just want to, there's two, they just think there's two important, but also they put a lot of their own lives into this. What's Don Berwick doing? Well, Don, I think, amongst others, is talking to a lot of his friends in, um, uh, in the healthcare business, particularly uh, talking to folks uh, uh, at hospitals and others, because and and continuing to have those conversations. So that that gets, I think, to the fundamental challenge here, where Dems don't have the votes. Instead, it's focused on a messaging campaign. What does success look like for the alliance for these efforts to preserve Obamacare? Well, I think, you know, this conversation has changed dramatically just in the last few days. Um, And just in the last few days, we've seen that uh, the Republicans are in disarray. Uh, It's become clearer and clearer that they don't have a plan uh, uh, for protecting America's health and America's health care. And they're in a box they don't really quite know how to get out of. So I think we are feeling uh, better and better uh, about this and feel 
you know, confident that there are going to be a large n- a number of Republican senators who basically say, I can't vote for repeal without knowing what is, is going to take its place. So this, th- this still has, to, has some time to play out. The counter to that, we, we just talked with Phil Rowe, the Tennessee representative who released a plan this week to repeal and replace Obamacare. That plan includes ideas like selling insurance across state lines, block granting Medicaid. His argument is that Republicans do have plans and that they're still working out exactly what that plan is going to be, much like Democrats in 2009 needed X number of months to put a plan together. Sounds like you don't agree with that assessment. Well, I, don't, I, I don't think anyone agrees with the assessment that they have a plan. Um, I think if you ask them, they don't have a plan. They have many plans, most of which don't add up and most of which don't really do anything for the people who are affected. So I think people recognize that this is really a kind of a partisan, irresponsible action that they see ha- going on. And that, you know, I, I think we have very strong substantive uh, case to make, but also I think just as Importantly, there's a common sense case to make. It is just irresponsible for people to rip apart a law that affects 30 million people, 20% of our economy, and not have anything to replace it. And it doesn't make a difference if you love the law or you have problems with the law. Everyone could recognize that simply repealing it without showing, having a plan or telling people what's going to happen in their place is just an irresponsible act on something so important. As we speak in early January, it seems like Republicans are still moving very quickly toward striking down the law, whether or not there is a replacement set. The Instead of repeal and replace, the repeal and delay strategy. You just got to this, Leslie, that there could be immediate effects from pursuing that. Is there a target that you are working toward, that your organization is, is really focused on in the next week or two to try and achieve short-term success? Yeah. Well, first, I think we're already having tremendous success just over the last several weeks and the last several days. I don't believe anybody who was plotting this out in the Republican leadership really understood and admitted to themselves how hard this was going to be. We're also seeing uh, voices rise up across the country. You're seeing uh, uh, leaders of major hospitals begin to be very uh, strong about this. Clearly, the people whose lives are personally affected, very strong about this. Disease groups, strong about this. So the landscape of this is changing. So, you know, from our point of view, uh, uh, we're, in a sense, winning just over the last several days. But I think for us, the goal is to, uh, uh, and we think we'll succeed in this, that senators are going to walk in, Republican senators, and say, I simply can't vote uh, to repeal this law without knowing what's going to take its place. And, and all you really need are two Republican senators to defect from, from uh, the Republican push here. And to add to that, I think there was, immediately after the election, conventional wisdom that there was going to be a repeal bill on the new president's desk January 20th. We've already moved beyond that. There now are divisions between the Republican Party about how they're going to do a bill that are becoming more and more clear. Speaker Ryan was asked yesterday what the replacement plan was twice, and he couldn't, and he couldn't answer that. So... I think the I think the date is being pushed further and further back. You, you don't think that Republicans are going to be able to come up with a replacement bill in the next two weeks? That seems improbable. A little improbable, maybe. Yeah, yeah a maybe just a little. Looking at these different groups, Protect Your Care, the Alliance, there had been a major funding push for efforts to 
increased enrollment through the Affordable Care Act. Enroll America. We had Ann Philippic on this podcast not so long ago, and her group, which had been bigger, has been winding down as they have achieved some of their goals, as funding has been pushed back. You've come out with several waves of ad campaigns, which makes me wonder, who's funding you? Like, how many dollars are there out there right now for this kind of effort? Or have a lot of those dollars already been spent in the five, six years of pushing Affordable Care Act implementation and outreach? Yeah, I think that uh, both halves of your story here, uh, premise are true. But first, you know, to point out that open enrollment is going very, very well this year. And that's yet another testament to the power of this law and the importance of this law in people's lives. So, CMS, I think, just this week said 8.8 8 million, million people, people have signed up on healthcare.gov. Yeah. So at which the same is an time, increase from, la- from around this time last year. Which was 8.6 million 8. 6. At, at this time yeah. last year. I, I want to caveat, healthcare.gov is a little different this year. Kentucky is now on the exchange, on the federal exchange, and that seems to be a big bulk of the difference year over year. I think the point's still the same. I think a lot of people felt that in the face of potential uh, chaos in the marketplace, which we may see, that people were going to shy away uh, from signing up. And just the opposite is true. So whether the number is a little more or a little less, you know, we can go back and forth on that. But, the, but I think the basic point is still the same, which is millions and millions of people rely on, a, on the Affordable Care Act for coverage they can afford. And it's a demonstration of that. So, you know, there were the, so open enrollment is going well. And I think a lot of folks did think that, hey, look, this law is part of the fabric of healthcare in America. Um, we have med- doctors and hospitals who have moved on and trying to move to quality care. Uh, we uh, have folks who are signing up for insurance. So I do think a lot of folks thought, hey, this is successful. People aren't going to want to rip it apart. Um, and so they, in a sense, had moved on to other issues within healthcare. Uh, but now everyone realizes the threat. And so people are coming, you know, are coming back. And so, I, you know, we have much more work to do. Uh, uh, you know, your first question. So we woke up to a new reality on November 9th. Or uh, 10.30 p.m. on November, November 8th. 8th yeah. Depending on whether you yeah. had, you know, gone to bed early. Um, and so I think we've made tremendous progress in the last two months. But there's no doubt we have more work to do. And the Republicans have uh, put out a quite ambitious agenda, agenda, which doesn't stop with the Affordable Care Act. It continues to Medicaid and it continues to Medicare. So this is not over, uh, e- even when we're successful in stage one. And stage one being, so there, there might not be a replace bill in two weeks. Stage two could be, this is a battle that's going to go on for six months, nine months into next year, potentially. Republicans are maintaining they will have a replacement plan out by the end of 2017. You are committed to staying and fighting through that. Without doubt. And also, uh, you know, the threats of uh, block granting Medicaid and what that means for millions of people around the country and the potential threats to Medicare. So all of those are part and parcel uh, of healthcare in America. Yeah. And I think there has been no evidence that a replacement plan is coming. And so I, so I think part of this campaign effort, um, it, which Americans agree with, because it is so common sense that before you rush ahead to tear away a healthcare system that is working for millions of Americans and providing them healthcare, just show us what the plan is to replace it. And this is true even with Republicans and Trump voters and independents who might not love the idea of Obamacare. It's just 
common sense, well, what's the plan for the 30 million people who are going to lose health care? What's the plan for people um, that's almost everyone who has a pre-existing condition? The numbers that you've both mentioned, 30 million, it, there, there has been a little bit of a political battle over how many people would actually be affected. Between 20 million or 30 million. I, tell me how you're defining that number. So I, I think I know where you're getting it from, but for the listener's sake. Well, it's a, it's a number that's you know comes from the urban studies, but it basically includes... Uh, urban Institute ur- studies. Urban yeah. Institute yeah. studies. It basically includes folks who are insured today because of Medicaid expansion folks who are insured on the exchanges, but also importantly, people who are no longer to be able to afford their insurance because of the chaos in the individual market that pulling the rug out of Medicaid, pulling the rug out of the exchanges will do. Um, and if people want to have, you know, if it's 20 million Americans who stand up or 30 million Americans who stand up, um, uh, that's still an astronomical number of lives. You're targeting six states in your new ad campaign. We reported that this morning in Politico Pulse, uh, Alaska, Arizona, um, trying to remember the others, Nevada, Tennessee, West Virginia, Maine. Why pick those states? Yeah, First, we're, those, we're active in other states, and you know, there's conversations happening in many, many more. But I think what we've seen is that a number of Republican senators have stood up and they've said, look, I'm concerned about this. I'm worried about the impact on the hundreds of thousands of people in my state who are going to lose their insurance. I'm worried about the impact on the hospitals in my state, the services they provide, and frankly, the employment they provide. Many of these states' medical centers are the largest employers uh, in the state. And, and the, the, these members who are you know, they know that it's just not the right thing to do to rip this apart without a replacement plan. So they've opened the door to this conversation, um, and we want to, you know, further it with them. So to connect the dots there, there might be a moderate Maine Republican or potentially a senator in Tennessee named Lamar Alexander who has talked about replace before repeal. And that is where you are thinking with this ad campaign and the states you're targeting. I think those are the those are the conversations we want to have. And I think to your point, members have started the conversations themselves. And uh, and there are even more Republican senators who are coming forward with these concerns like you just had Rand Paul come forward saying that he might not vote for repeal without a replacement plan. Though he did add on later that he would likely support repeal efforts at the end of the day. Yeah. So I think what you're seeing is you've got sort of, you know, all these years of kind of pent up partisan ideological need to do something. And in just a short period of time, it's run smack into the reality of our really big issue um, that's causing a lot of people to doubt uh, uh, that strategy. So it's no longer just it was very easy to say before when there were no consequences when you knew President Obama would veto a repeal bill. Now they're understanding, I think, as some of your colleagues reported, um, that there are going to be real-world consequences of repealing a law that are going to affect their constituents and the hospitals in their states and jobs in their states. It's much easier to attack than play defense and to actually game out the real-world implications of policy change. And it's much easier to attack an amorphous idea of just the word Obamacare or the word of a law versus once you get into the details of the law, of covering of 20 million people who now have insurance that didn't have it before or people with pre-existing conditions like cancer, diabetes, asthma, who were uninsurable before or had 
um, premiums of thousands of thousands of dollars a month um, who can now get insurance. Last question from me. We've talked a lot about Obamacare, saving Obamacare. How much will President Obama be involved in the effort to save Obamacare, do you think? Well, it's clear how committed he is just by looking at how he's using the precious time he has uh, in these waning days of his administration. And and, um, he's obviously a quite powerful voice for this. So I just take him at his word, which is that as a citizen, he's going to continue to be engaged in the issues that he cares so deeply about. Um, and I think he's left a legacy not only of uh, thousands of, pe- of people who fought this battle, who are going to fight it again, but more importantly, the millions of people whose lives are better, uh, who may not even know that their lives are better because of the Affordable Care Act. But once you threaten them uh, to take that all away, I think it becomes a lot clearer. And that's what we're, you know, we're beginning to see. Have you talked with his team about his role post-White House? We haven't. Um, you know, we... Um, we try and learn from each other as we go through this phase, but I think uh, we all know the privacy that surrounds the president of the United States, um, and we'll we'll all be eager to see what that what he does. And, and I'll be eager to see if he pops up in one of your advertisements in a few months. <laughs> Leslie Doc, Megan Smith, thank you so much for making time for this interview. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. That's it for Pulse Check today. Thanks to Bridget Mulcahy, our ace producer, who helped me sneak into the Canon office building this week can find the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, SoundCloud, rate us, review us, and let me know who we should have on upcoming episodes. And we'll be back again with a new episode of Pulse Check next week.